0: If you'd all get a copy of your Psalter hymnal and turn in the back to the Heidelberg Catechism, this morning we're looking at Heidelberg Catechism questions and answers for Lord's Day 8. Lord's Day 8. And this is our custom, a very wise custom. Uh, We're going to um, begin this morning by uh, reading the confession together so that we have it fixed into our minds. Lord's Day eight, beginning at question twenty four. Uh, we've been looking at um, the Apostles' Creed was introduced last time we were together as a statement of the universal faith of the Christian Church. And question twenty four asks, how are these articles divided into three parts: God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Question 25. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. You can tell this is a much, much briefer section than the previous seven weeks that we've looked at. And so I'm going to explore an aspect of um, this question and answer on the Trinity that is probably a little bit more complicated than we're normally shooting for. We're normally looking at the the basics of the Christian faith. And I'm going to try to tease out something, that's a little bit harder for us uh, to wrap our minds around, in part because probably most of us have never even thought about it. When we were together, we looked... Um, in terms of the Sunday School of last time, we looked at our commitment to the ancient and universal faith as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. The Catechism calls this the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. That is, although the Apostles' Creed is not part of Scripture, it is based on Scripture, and, and it is something that We all ought to profess, and if we stray away from it in our thinking or certainly in our confession, we're doing so at grave risk to ourselves. And in fact, we may be sowing division within the Church of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to begin to take a look at the Apostles' Creed together. Um, The Catechism begins by noting that the Apostles' Creed is divided into three parts. God the Father and our creation— God the Son in our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And right away you'll notice that it isn't simply a confession of our belief of the triune God in himself. Each one of those divisions has two parts, because it's a confession of God as he relates to us. That is, God has revealed himself to us in history in a very particular way. Right? Right? Uh, it, It has to do with his relationship with us as Christians. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about God and himself, since we do want to know as much about him as we can. Nevertheless, we should note the very practical aspect of the Creed. It is not a philosophical treatise about how we're going off in rooms by ourselves and trying to contemplate high thoughts about God. Rather, the Creed is simply expressing the way God has revealed himself to us ...in history. Two points. First, we only know God... ...to the degree that he himself... ...has revealed himself to us. Right? This is not something that independently... ...we kind of ascend some sort of mountain... ...and therefore figure out who God is. Right? God dwells in a light that is unapproachable for us... ...and we only know him... ...to the extent and in the way... ...that he has chosen to reveal himself to us... He does that in general revelation. He does it through scripture. He's done it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we can know anything about him. Second, the Lord has not revealed himself to us by giving us an abstract philosophical treatise on the nature of true deity. I I think that sometimes um, when Christians start talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, because it's become very nuanced and detailed, and uh, philosophical language is brought in so that we're being careful about where the boundaries are, that we can start to think it's this very abstract, dry bit of thinking. But that is not how God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. The Lord has primarily revealed himself to us in his relationship to humanity as our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier, our comforter, and our king. That is, our knowledge of the Lord is fundamentally relational. That doesn't mean we can't say propositional truths about God. By the way, this is true in your own relationship. Um, sometimes this phrase, propositional truth, has gotten really beaten up as though that's like a bad thing. Oh, you believe in propositional truths. Well, I always want to ask people, what's a non-propositional truth? Right? For something to be true, there has to be, you have to be able to state it as a proposition, So truth, by definition, has to be able to carry those sort of propositional comments and descriptions. But, And by the way, that's true in your own relationship. It would be really weird if you said, oh, I love my wife so much, but I can't tell you anything about her. I'm not caught up in all those propositions about her, right? Just the relationship. That's not true knowledge. So we can have propositions about God. In fact, we must have propositions about God to know him. But I want you to see that the way God has revealed himself is primarily relational. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our comforter, our strength, our, our, um, our king that rules us in our day-to-day lives. That's the primary way that God has revealed himself to us. That's a, that's, I think it's pretty simple, but let's get questions out on that about how we know God or how God is revealing himself to us Before we try to move on to the part of uh, this morning's class, it's going to be just a little more complicated. Does anyone have any questions at all about the fact that we can only know God to the degree that he reveals himself to us and that he primarily reveals himself to us in relationship with us, right, through the history of redemption? Any questions on that at all? Don't make me call on Annie. No? I I won't, probably. Okay, I think that's all pretty straightforward. Oh, we got a question now. Ben. Well, you history of I suppose that includes the Bible. Yeah, history of redemption includes the history of revelation. It's not the Yeah, it's acts and words. Well, it's a very important thing to remember. Ben, ben bringing up a, a something I was taking for granted in this congregation, but maybe I shouldn't. Um, in 20th century, a little bit at the end of the 19th century, in biblical scholarship, people started talking about the history of redemption as though that all that really matters are the acts. But God doesn't simply act on your behalf in Jesus Christ. He interprets it for us. He tells us what it means. Uh, To give you a simple example of the problem with the former, if all you knew was that Jesus died on Calvary, it would do you no good at all you wouldn't know that God loved you. If you don't know that Jesus died, united with you and for your sins, all all you'd have is the event of uh, someone dying. You need interpretation. God reveals both what he's doing and he reveals to us what it means, why he's doing it, why he's doing things out of love, why sometimes he chastises his people. We, We just have the event that God sends his people into the Babylonian captivity and we've got to guess what's up. He explains to us why he's doing it, what he's doing, and he brings them back and he explains that to us as well. So thank you, Ben. Yeah. I Maybe I take the risk of hair splitting. That's okay. Hair splitting's fine. But to say that uh, God predominantly reveals himself, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth either. Go ahead. Um, God predominantly reveals himself in the way he relates to us. I think we miss important things that are in Scripture about when God says, Here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. I don't think that's a relational statement. If you think about the first chapter of Genesis, I don't think that's predominantly a relational statement. So we do learn a lot about God in ways that don't relate to us as well. Yeah, so the, que- the question is Is it right to say that we primarily know God in terms of how he relates to us? And two examples were given that says maybe not so. Um, I do want to say there are examples where God simply states facts, but actually I think both of those don't work. So we start with um, uh, God saying, "Hero Israel, the Lord." So the Shema we talked about this morning: "Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one." What is God saying there when He says the Lord is one? What's His point? It is a revelation of monotheism. That is true. But if you take the whole passage together, what you hear is... ...it's a call of monotheism about your relationship to me, your God. Because it goes right on to say... ...and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength... ...and love your neighbor as yourself. That is, God doesn't reveal himself in a monotheistic way to us... ...so we can file that away as a theological bit. Rather, it's a call that I am the only God... ...therefore you owe me your, all your loyalty and all your faithful love... And in fact, it goes on even after that. You shall teach these things to your children, your children's children, and so on. Likewise, you have to think about Genesis 1 in the original context. Um, I I will say, regrettably, even some pastors, don't do this. Someday, if you're a pastor or a seminary professor, either way, don't do this. But regrettably, even pastors do this. They teach Genesis 1 as though Genesis 1 is primarily about the days, right? Or, 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 Or what's going on there. It is true that through Genesis one, God is revealing something about Himself, but you have to remember the original context. What's the original context of Genesis one? When is that being given in redemptive history? Moses. When? When with Moses? When? I'm not talking about like you know April third, seven p.m. But to, when is with Israel? Is it? Bef- but when do, does he give it to them before or after the Exodus? After. Yeah, it's actually after that. So the book of Genesis comes before the book of Exodus, but we, we get this revelation that comes from God is almost certainly the whole Torah comes... Uh, there's bits because we you know, that he's given directly to him before, but in terms of it getting written, comes as the people of God are in the wilderness moving toward the promised land. By the way, it doesn't matter in this case if it's before, right? If he's calling the people of God, um, uh, while he's sending Moses to the people of God, saying, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. So what does Genesis one tell us about God relationally? It's very important. Well, what would you think if you're an Israelite that's leaving Egypt? You gotta remember that at the time, one of the most common forms of religion is called henotheism. We often think of polytheism. Henotheism is kind of confusing because heno means one in Greek, so it may sound like it's the same thing as monotheism, but it doesn't. Henotheism means we've got a God, you've got a God. They've got a God, or they have a chief God. So Israel has a God, Yahweh, but the Canaanites have gods too. How do we know that our God's going to deliver us into Canaan? Right? And God says, well, you've got to understand who I am as your God. I am the God who spoke the universe into existence. I'm not just merely any old God. right? My word has power. I'm telling you to trust my word. My very words bring life into existence. So you can take me at my word. The people of Israel were not intended to read Genesis 1 as an abstract discussion of how the world was created or even about who God the creator is. They were to see this in relationship. This is the Lord that we worship who creates everything with beauty and majesty. And he's delivering us. And he has the power to bring us into the, the world where we're going to. Now there's a lot of facts in there too. It tells us, you read through Genesis 3, it talks about how we fell, and it explains our sin and all those other things. That's a bit relational. So I'm not disagreeing with your point that there are some things that are just facts about God, but I actually think most of those facts, as they're given in uh, biblical revelation, are actually connected to relational realities with us. And I think that's particularly true of Deuteronomy 6, with the Shema, but I think it's actually true with Genesis 1 as well. We ought not to read Genesis 1 as though it is simply a statement about what God happened to be doing for the first six days. Okay, that was a lot. Um, Let's move on to question 25 where it gets complicated. Question 25 asks, Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I want to start with this morning is something you probably have not thought of at all... ...unless you've thought about Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's the fact that we start with God being one, in essence... ...and we move from God being one in essence to being three in person. And the question is, why? Why do we start with God being one in essence and move to three in person rather than start with God being three in person and then move to one in essence. And the catechism actually just assumes that. You know, it's part of Western Christianity. We do it that way, right? What difference does that make? I should note, by the way, you don't have any choice. You're finite. You've got to start somewhere. You can't just start with everything, right? You've got to take things by piece. So is, is it right for us to start? Oh, I got, he's going to bring an answer here. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, um, the three are
1: one in essence, and they're equal in status and
0: dignity. That is totally true, but the three are one in essence, and they're equal in status and dignity. But why do we start with the one and not start with the three to do that? Why don't, we lodge, why don't we just start with... By the way, the Eastern Church does, so we should realize there is an alternative here. Most Eastern Christians start with... Uh, I'm going to come back to this question, actually, of why. I want to talk about what difference it makes. Most Eastern Christians start with a monarchical view of God where God the Father is where they start, and therefore they deal personally with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, they tend to be less strong on the unity of God. But I want to actually start with a slightly different twist here. We're going to come back and give you this question again of why do we start with the unity of God. But I want to ask, what difference does it make? What difference does it make whether we start with the unity of God or we start with the tri-personality of God? Now, you're all Western Christians, so you just take for granted. You start with the unity of God. Um, there's actually a problem with it. Wherever you start, you're going to psychologically... This isn't in theory. In theory, it makes no difference. But in practice, wherever you start, you're naturally going to uh, think is more fundamental than whatever you go do next. So if you start with the unity of God, it's very easy to think God's unity, that's what's really important, and it's more foundational than God being three persons. Now, logically, you know that's not true, because God has always existed as three persons. It wasn't like he was one God, and then suddenly he became three persons, right? But you're, you're very tempted to do that. It has ramifications for us. The ramification is, is that Western Christians tend to think of God in less personal terms than Eastern Christians do. Uh, one theologian has pointed out that the most common terms that are used both popularly, when you just get like people praying or how preachers talk or you listen to people pray in their own lives, and in academic circles in the West for God are God and Lord. Titles, not names. And, and so, one of the things that happens is in Western Christianity, and I will say this is very true in America, uh, in my, my own experience. But I, you know, I've read this from lots of other people as well. Many Christians tend toward modalism. Does any, can anyone give us a definition of modalism? Ben. Uh,
1: there is one person who reveals himself in three different ways: that so he revealed as Father in the open, as Son in the and
0: as in the yeah, so ben, Ben's answer is correct. i nuance it just a little bit. But modalism is the idea that you have one God in being who's also one person. And when we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those are just different ways, different modes by which the one person of God is revealing himself. You don't actually have three distinct persons. Um. I trust you all know that's not true, but let me just press that one. Can someone here give some biblical support that makes clear that as God has revealed himself to us, there are, in fact, three distinct persons who are the one God? Ray. Jesus' is baptism. Jesus' is baptism. That's a classic example, because the Father is pouring out the Holy Spirit on the Son. And by the way, the mere fact that they talk to each other is also... Although I know some of you talk to yourselves. That does not necessarily mean you have split personalities. But the fact that they talk to each other. Jesus prays to the Father. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. Right. So the three persons of the Trinity are not simply different expressions of the one person who is God. They are three distinct, eternally distinct persons. And yet it is a problem for us that we tend to not think that way. I want to go back to St. Augustine. Um, The the West has thought about God primarily um, from the standpoint of his unity at least as far back as St. Augustine, who wrote a very, very important work um, on the Trinity, simply called On the Trinity in most modern English translations. And um, it's mostly really, really good. I mean, St. Augustine is probably the most brilliant theologian after the death of the Apostle Paul in the history of the Church. He's extraordinarily brilliant, and it's a very good work. But, you know, it's really hard to talk about something as complicated as God because God's also simple. That's really tricky. Um, But God is infinitely bigger than we are. And and we're small, so it's hard. So we try to get analogies. That's often how we explain things. Does anyone know what Augustine's famous analogy for the Holy Spirit is? How he tries to explain the Trinity, not in terms of, like, you know, water and ice and so on, because that doesn't work at all. Um, Augustine's... Augustine's, um, analogy is actually still quite popular in scholarly circles. He wants to maintain the three persons. The father is the lover, the son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between them. What do you think? You're a fine theologian. What do you think? You're going to agree with St. Augustine, the most important theologian in the history of the church after the death of the apostles? Or are you going to side with your pastor? Ben, what do you think? I want to know it's early or late, oh, that's a great question. Um, it's kind of mid-Augustine, heading toward late. He writes his work on the train. Yeah, Augustine does change his views over time, which, by the way, I hope you all do too. Um, I, I was thinking of this with talking about um, Augustine's doctrine of creation, where someone was trying to tell me that Augustine believed X, and I had to point out that Augustine actually published on creation three different times. And his his views were somewhat different in those. And you know it would be really bad if our theology was the same when we're sixty as it was when we were sixteen. We have to be growing. But that being said, here's the problem with this analogy: the lover is personal, the beloved is personal, but love is abstract. Love isn't itself personal. And if you take Augustine's view, which is very common in the West, what happens is, is you start thinking of the Holy Spirit not as a person but as an abstract force. You know, Let the force be with you if you go with Star Wars. And um, I think that's actually a real problem. Right? Is it a problem in your life? I have no idea. But I want to encourage you to think about this reality that it's very easy to depersonalize God if you focus on the unity at the expense of the tri-personality of God. And the very fact that you start with unity can get you there. So how do you, how do you avoid doing that in your life? Here's a few suggestions. Well, first, you should know that God is tri-personal. It's good to know the truth, right? Um, but a really practical way is in your prayer life. Ordinarily in the Bible, prayer is to the Father, right? Through the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. That's ordinarily the way we see the prayers show up. I don't think you have to be that complicated. I think that's how the Bible does it. That's how you ought to pray normally. Most of your prayers should be to the Father, through the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. However, the Bible also contains prayers both to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that in your own life. You know, like in the Lord's Supper this morning, I prayed to Jesus. The mere fact that you're praying to the persons of the Trinity as God... You pray to the Holy Spirit as God who's to be worshipped and adored together with the Father and the Son and you say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for your encouragement. Thank you, Holy... Don't just say, thank you, God. Say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting me of that. I was wrong and I needed to change. Would you empower me to do that? The practice of praying to the people, the persons of the Trinity by name will help you. I would also say, um, try to make sure you're using names that are personal around God or even titles sometimes. You say, holy comforter. Well, that's a title, but it's actually kind of a very personal sort of way of talking to, the whole, uh, to or about the Holy Spirit. So if you find yourself always just saying God, say Yahweh, God's covenant name, which actually applies to all three persons of the Trinity. Say Yahweh, say Father, say Holy Spirit, say Jesus, right? Say Holy Comforter, that's a perfectly good way to talk to the Holy, about the Holy Spirit. Uh, say the Holy Spirit. I think that will really help you. My third thing I want to encourage you on this is, um, I think it's third, is uh, Gregory Nanzianzus, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, uh, well worth your studying, particularly if you're going to master Greek. Uh, Gregory Nazianzus says, uh, in effect, that whenever I think of the one, I'm immediately, uh, immediately caught up in the wonder of the three, and whenever I think of the three, I immediately am turned back to the wonder of the one, right? That was a paraphrase, so don't quote me on that one. But, but the idea here is I need in my normal thought as I'm thinking about God and worshiping him is I don't... When I pray to Jesus, I'm not doing Jesus only. I'm thinking of Jesus as the eternally begotten Son of God who has sent the Holy Spirit to me. Right? You, you want to be bringing those things together. If you do that, that will really help you with your thinking. Questions on that? I know this is probably something you've never really thought of before, because as Western Christians, unless you've been studying Eastern Orthodoxy, you just started there. Right? You just start with God is unified. Questions or thoughts on that, Ben? Well, it seems like it's significant that historically, the way God reveals Himself
1: is primarily first as one, and then the freedom the of God
0: it becomes clear really. Then you were correct, and that was going to be the answer to the, what is the answer, to my next question is, why do we do it this way? Why do we start with the unity of God? Um, I do want to come back and just throw in, uh, you, you want to give the answer that he just gave? Is that is that how you're acing all your tests? Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Uh, that is the right answer, but I do want to just say for a moment that it's helpful to realize that there's a large group of Christians in the world who haven't approached the Trinity the way we have in the West. Right? Eastern Christians tend to start with the fatherhood of God. Right? So they're starting with one, but Father. And they move from Father to Son to Holy Spirit, and then they come back to that, those three persons being unified. And what you'll discover is if you ever get uh, engaged with reading Orthodox writers, or you go to an Orthodox church more than a few times for worship, is they're actually much more explicitly Trinitarian in their worship than most Protestants are. right? And, and so we have, we have things to learn from them, and they have things to learn from us. Um, I will tell you, though, that some aspects of your normal liturgy that we have um, should remind you of this as well. So I celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. What do I pray? Right? If I'm praying to Jesus like I did this morning, I will say, we ask not only for this church, but for all your churches scattered throughout the earth, that you and your Father together will richly pour out the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will proclaim your victorious death until you come again. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper about Jesus' life-giving death, but we're doing so in a Trinitarian way. And we do it that way because that's what God has given us in his, in his scripture. Right? Those are all biblical truths that we're doing. So we come back to Ben's point. Um, He cut that part of the discussion short by getting it right. Uh, Why do we move from unity, why do we start with unity and then move to diversity? And I think the answer is quite simply, that's how God does it. There are in fact hints of diversity in the Old Testament. Some of them are pretty strong hints with the angel of the Lord and Psalm 110, for example, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But they're not answers yet. They're more questions that should be raising in your mind if you're a faithful Jew going, how can that be? How how can the one that the Lord Yahweh is talking to be David's Lord, right? And the answer to that only comes when Jesus is born and we go, aha, now we see. He's both the son of David, but he's also the son of God, therefore he's greater. But it's not so clear. What God does start with, which is clear, what was brought up earlier in the Shema, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you know in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament religions, right up through Jesus' time, that's the very heart of the Jewish religion, the Shema. Uh, Pious Jews in the first century would pray the Shema three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Right? Three times a day. It a very hard. And if God starts there, we should start there too. Right? Now that may sound really simple, and I'm, I'm, I admit I am a simple man, but I want to encourage you, don't be smarter than God. It really works. Just God does it that way, we do it. I thought it was interesting, Kristen asked me a question on Friday night uh, about the Lord's Supper. You know, when I administer the Lord's Supper, I always say, this is my body given for you. How many of you have been in churches where the minister or the priest says, this is my body broken for you? You ever, you ever been there? Probably every single one of us, because it's very common. So Kristen goes, well, why do you say given? My answer is, that's what Jesus says. You read Luke, you read 1 Corinthians, and it's given for you. I don't need a more sophisticated explanation than it's the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. Why would I want to use words different than the ones that Jesus himself used? Does that that make sense to you? i got a few puzzled looks. Now, I'm not saying go out and beat people up who do that a little differently, right? We're, we're, We're to be known by our love for one another, not by our ability to whack people across the head with Bavinck's systematic theology, all four volumes. But I think that's a very practical thing in life. And by the way, it'll hold you in good stead in all manner of decisions. I remember when I was at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is in Jackson, Mississippi. It's very, very influenced by the Southern Baptist culture. Ministers don't drink. In fact, my, my advisor, um, I say this is someone who doesn't really drink, probably what, a glass of wine every year and a half or so, sweetheart? Um, but I remember my advisor going, look, you guys are going to be ministers. You guys are going to be ministers in the PCA, right? Well, you just got to take for granted you're not going to drink alcohol because you know that's going to just be shunned in our culture, and so people would come up with these long, sophisticated arguments about it. And I'm like, all you got to do is Jesus turned water into wine, right? And if Jesus turned water into wine and gave it to people, Jesus was right. It doesn't matter how good the argument is, you know. And of course, the, we have passages the Bible says, you know, the wine, God gives wine to gladden the heart and those sorts of things, but. Now, does that mean you need to drink? No, it does not. You are free to not drink alcohol, as your pastor mostly doesn't drink, uh, because you don't want to see me drinking. Um, Actually, I've never had more than one glass, I don't think, of wine in, well, I don't know, in years. My wife has. We won't tell the story, (laughs) but you may want to get the story out of my wife later about the time when she had three glasses of wine. Let me just mention, she had just agreed to marry me. (laughs) In my defense, she hadn't tasted a sip of wine before she said yes. You, you can do what you want with the fact that she felt compelled to drink three glasses after she did. <laughs> okay, where are we here today? So that's simple answer. Does anyone have any questions on that or want to follow up on that? I, I do want to say it, it, it sounds so simple, but it doesn't have to be more complicated. This is the way God has revealed himself to us. Primarily, starting with his unity, and so it makes completely good sense that we would do so, while safeguarding ourselves and remembering he's always been triune, and working at the fact that we want to make sure we're not taking that, that approach and making God impersonal in our lives. Questions or thoughts? Yeah, Hope. Um,
1: I was just wondering, like, how, what do you think is a good way for us to find balance between, like, having those personal, uh, like, names for, for every person in the Trinity but not taking that
0: too far and like going into, like, the Jesus is my homie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, where you, like, you know, Balance. It's easy to go too far in either direction between, like, reverence Yeah. And very
1: little for are
0: and So, I do Hope raises an, a, a wonderful question, which is how do we maintain the balance? We have the personal names of God, but we don't want to drift over to Jesus is my boyfriend, right? Um, and you want to have both that sense of reverence and the sense that God is near to his people. And I want to say, first of all, you have to work at it. You can't just assume this is going to happen in your life. Your natural tendency is going to be to drift into one groove and stay in that groove now one of the ways we can do that is in, in our worship is that um, formal worship naturally tends to promote the transcendence of god informal worship tends to promote the accessibility of god to us and here's the truth you need both one of the reasons why the session has a more formal structured worship for, for the morning is we realize two things One is, that's where we're going to get most people. Most people don't come back for evening worship. Two, uh, it's very hard to do formal worship by yourself in private. It's much more natural for you to approach God on that very approachable, my tender father who cares for me, uh, and so on, in my private devotions. And therefore, it's important that we have this opportunity to do formal worship together. Come to evening worship, you're going to notice that while it's still reverent, we hope it is, there's a much greater degree of informality around it. Even although our church is very diverse in how people dress, people even dress a little more relaxed. So, those sorts of things can be helpful. Uh, part of it, hope, is um, making sure you're reading and applying the whole Bible, right? Because you're going to come to parts of the Bible where there really is this degree of tenderness, right? Where, where Jesus is uh, talking about taking little children in his arms and saying, you know, if such is the kingdom of God, and aren't you a child of God, and so on? And uh, we don't want to say that's bad when people approach God that way, because God wants you to have that whole range of experiences. So read the whole Bible and apply it, but I do think actually the way we worship shapes the way we think an awful lot. So make sure you have some formal worship, some informal worship that can help. Yeah. Does anyone else have any other suggestions? Any? Yeah, I really
1: appreciate how almost every Sunday when we pray, we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He tries to make reference to the Trinity and he ends up making a lot of like mistakes theologically when he says, like, in giving us the Holy
0: Spirit or something like that. Yeah, leaving the Holy Spirit until his work on earth is done. Yes, I, 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 by the way, I appreciate Keith Green had a great heart about him, but not the place to get your theology. Yeah,
1: but I just think that it's super important and I think maybe we've lost this in. In evangelical circles, how, like traditionally, or say the first fifteen hundred years of the church, it was practice to always end your prayer with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yep. Um, and I don't-
0: Yeah, Yeah. so actually this is a good help. Uh, hope and what Annie is saying is, um, first of all, one of the ways we help keep balance is we look at traditions other than ours and we look about the history of the church. Uh, and, and I think it plays into how we lost it. So Annie's pointing out that in North American evangelicalism, we've tended to lose this. And I want to suggest a reason why. I'm, I'm not, you know, i uh, a mission here. I can't say this is what happened. But I think it's a very logical reason why it would happen this way. People wanted to do everything spontaneously. Get rid of structured liturgy and so on in their churches. The problem is, is if I am spontaneous, I am naturally going to default into particular grooves. And I am going to lose balance. And so there's really something to be said for the formal liturgy of the church, right? That that you have sometimes set prayers... Uh, this gets me in trouble with Presbyterians, but I'm, I'm happy with prayer books. I think there's real value in them uh, because I, just my nature. I'm your pastor, and I stand up, and I pray spontaneously most of the time, and I'm, I'm going to hit certain targets, and a prayer book's going to bring us a, a wider breadth of prayers for all the people of God. right? So um, I appreciate Annie's thoughts there. Other comments on this? Right. I think it's
1: safe
0: to say that in the, in the early religion, um, God revealed himself,
1: or at least to his people, uh, to say you know, he's, God is one, right? Yes. Where pretty much all
0: the other religions had multiple gods. Is that safe to say? Or? Uh, not necessarily. We tend to think of polytheism because of our experience with the Canaanites. Uh, but most people tended to have at least the chief god. Whether it was for their people, was Baal or Marduk or whatever it was for their particular land. Now, it's true that the Israelites in Egypt, the Egyptians had a lot of gods. They do have a, I think Ra is normally thought of as the chief god in Egypt. But um, I think henotheism was actually also a really common issue. So it really depends on when you're starting. We go back into um, older times in Babylon and Sumeria. It does seem to to be that they had an idea of God being one. Yeah, but, but but they were worshiping that one God in wrong ways. So I, I don't know. It's a good question to ask. I'm not sure we, we I don't sure we know enough about the past to sort that question out. Because the it they going on with God, it's also proclaiming that He's the only living true God, yeah. God of creation, right? Yeah. No, you're right because the way when God reveals Himself as one in the Torah as I said earlier, it often has that ethical component to it. You owe your exclusive loyalty to me. Yeah, and, I, and so I do think that that's part of why that makes sense. Yes, Ben.
1: Do you think that in our tradition, the emphasis on Christocentric preaching has distorted our view of the Trinity? Mm-hmm. For example, you know Luther famously, his issue is justification, and so he uses that one issue to interpret the book of James, which is really the appropriate. And yeah. now his particular theological perspective is forcing a particular interpretation of God's word. And so, like, for example, I asked an OPC pastor once, if you were preaching on Acts 2, would you preach about Jesus, or would you preach about the Holy Spirit? He
0: said, I would preach about Jesus. It seems to me like maybe that. How about both? Um, okay, so Ben's, Ben's question with uh, three and a half minutes to go allows me, while I'm still on tape, to get myself in a lot of trouble with people all over the OPC. Uh, the question has to do was: has our tradition's approach to Christ-centered preaching gotten us in trouble on this so that we think that we have to always talk about Christ and it's more spiritual to talk about Christ than it is to talk about the Holy Spirit and the Father? And my answer to that question is yes, but I also don't do Christ centered preaching in the sense that it means here. And the problem is, it's such a nice sounding term. Um, everyone wants to go, I do that. I do redemptive historical preaching, I do Christ centered preaching. Uh, I believe in Trinitarian preaching. And so I don't, I don't engage in that sort of approach. There are other problems that come with that approach as well, one of which is is it tends to downplay progressive sanctification because the end of every sermon is always, you fell short, but the good news is is Jesus didn't, and therefore your sins are forgiven. You'll see that come up over and over again in in people that self-consciously pursue Christ-centered preaching. I think that's wrong. I think we ought to receive God the way he has revealed himself to us in Scripture and we ought not to take a passage that's talking about God's fatherhood and spend most of the time talking about Christ. Now, it's appropriate to have all three persons in a Trinity because they're always connected to each other, right? But it's not somehow less spiritual to talk about the Holy Spirit than Jesus. If you go to our presbytery and hear men being examined for licensure to preach, um, you'll see that there'll be people pressing them on. Every sermon needs to talk about Jesus, those very same people do not say every sermon needs to talk about the Holy Spirit or the Father. I think that's actually a problem. So now that's on tape, and uh, we'll, wait, we'll wait for the, the emails to roll in. Uh, people at Presbytery know this. I, I, I have said this openly to them. By the way, it's not part of our confessional standards. And in my defense, my approach to preaching is Calvin's approach to preaching. So if you want to throw Calvin out of the Reformed tradition, I guess I have to go with him. Um, Any last-minute comments? We've got one minute. Martha, you're not going to throw me out, are you? I I
1: just think the the one thing that needs to be remembered is the incomprehensibility of the Trinity. We can't truly
0: come up with,
1: in our brains,
0: how that works. Yeah, so Martha's point is fantastic, because it's where I wanted to end. We have to remember the incomprehensibility of the Trinity. As I tell the young people, but I'll tell you all this too, um, it's really a good thing that you can't comprehend God. That's the first subject in systematic theology, is that God is incomprehensible. Not that you can't know something about him, you can apprehend him, but God is infinite, you're finite, he's always going to be bigger than you can think. So I want to end this morning with a quotation from Robert Latham, very fine Reformed theologian who... um, was at one time an OPC minister, but he's back in Wales now teaching at um, Union School of Theology in Oxford. Robert Latham puts it like this. Logical deductions from premises are good within certain parameters, but if absolute ties can prevent us from knowing, in theology this means we must faithfully submit ourselves to God's revelation and allow our thoughts to proceed from the basis of who he discloses himself to be, recognizing at the same time that he, is, he infinitely transcends the capacities of our minds. Okay? Let's just stop there. Uh, John, would you close in prayer?